Morning, church. Well, this is our second to last outdoor service. So what a joy to be able to worship under the skies. And as you notice, it's warming up. So the timing is right. Uh, when we can uh, go inside, there, there will still be the courtyard option for those of you who feel more safe or those of you who uh, are not yet vaccinated and feel like you need to uh, love your neighbor by worshiping outside. Uh, and also, uh, we, we are going to continue to try to make sure we maintain a good live stream for those who are more susceptible and uh, continue to need to worship at home. So we'll give you more information, uh, hopefully by next week. I need to uh, double down on, uh, on Pastor Terrence's announcement on the monitoring service. That's serious. I mean, as you know, we, we put that in because uh, over COVID, we experienced several break-ins uh, in the middle of the night. Um, and so, so this is a professional monitoring, monitoring service, and even the pastors um, and, and our custodial staff, uh, we experienced it, uh, some of our pastors, where what happens is that um, if, if you're, so officers, deacons, pay attention, anybody who has a key, if you come at 7 p.m., office closes at 5 or 6, uh, they will call the cops on you. They don't know who we are, right? These are rotational employees working for a company monitoring. And so it happened to one of our staff on a, on a Friday evening after the office closed. All of a sudden, you hear the speaker saying, you have 15 minutes? Or is it five minutes? What happened? Is it you have five minutes to get off the campus? Police is being called. And so that staff had to go outside and call our trustee. Hey, I don't have a security code. Call, call it off. Um, it happened to our custodial staff. Custodial staff, uh, you know, because our office is not open. They don't know, right? So c custodial staff comes in maybe 5 or 6 a.m. You have five minutes to get off the campus. And so all of our pastors, if we're going to come after or before, um, we have to call the security company and give them our unique security code, and then they'll clear us, uh, and then we come in. And so this is part of uh, just keeping our campus secure. I know that as our church grows in size and as well as um, building, we need to steward this. So I know this is a bit of a transition from being a family church. It's been some time now, right? It's been a decade since we've expanded beyond that number. And, and so all of us, including the, the senior and lead pastors, are, 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 are getting used to this. Um, so if I, if I left something, if I left my computer in my office, I can't just come back without calling the security company afterwards. So I'm going to ask all of us just to be patient with this, especially those of you who um, have events that are after uh, the evening, after the office closes or on off weeks and weekends, okay? So, uh, so be patient with us. We're all going to learn together, starting with our staff and team. Well, today's sermon is about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I know it's not Easter, but we happen to be in 1 Corinthians 15. And the resurrection of Christ is the foundational doctrine to Christianity. The Apostle Paul teaches us that if the resurrection is somehow proven to not have, to, to not have happened, to not be historically accurate, that everything that we believe in would be in vain. And that's how serious the resurrection of Christ is. But there's something unique and beautiful about the resurrection. The resurrection shows us that Christianity is not just intellectual, but there's an intellectual element. And it is not just emotional, but there's an emotional faith element. And here's why. It begins with this. The argument that Paul presents for the resurrection is historical. That means that Christianity has an intellectual aspect 
where you actually believe in something that's historical, re historical reality. It can be proven through the discipline of history. So there is actually intellectual validity to Christianity. But at the same time, the resurrection's a miracle. And so to believe in a miracle is you, Christianity is not just mental assent. So how do you become a Christian? Do you just read a bunch of books and mentally believe in it? No. Do you just believe in a message intellectually? Is that all it is? No, it's not. Because you can do that and not have a changed life and still struggle with sin. Is, is Christianity just, I believe in this message and I live my life how I want? No, because it requires a belief in a miracle. And a belief in a miracle is belief in something that's not intellectual, if you will. It is not logical in a natural scientific sense. It requires faith. And faith carries with it the emotional aspect. Yes, there is an intellectual aspect to faith in trusting mentally in knowledge. But there's a conviction of the soul. There's a belief. And it's actually the miracle part that changes your life because the miracle conveys the new life, the new birth, believing that a person can change. A person like the Apostle Paul. So we're going to dive in, and I'm going to begin with this illustration. The Christian faith is grounded on the historical evidence of Jesus' resurrection, and the resurrection is a miracle. For those of you who do maybe struggle with the intellectual questions, and you appreciate science, let me just be straight with you, science is a good thing. Don't ever talk down science. Science is a good instrument. It's a tool. That's what science is. Science, what is science? You take a hypothesis and you test it, and you test it over and over again until it, it proves that it works or it fails. That's basically the scientific process. But if Christianity is based on a miracle, then science is good, but it's just the wrong tool. Uh, apologists have said it's like taking an MRI machine, which is a good tool, to an auto mechanic and saying there's something wrong with my car. Here's an MRI machine. Wrong tool, right? Wrong instrument. The MRI machine is good, but the mechanic is not going to use an MRI machine to discover what's wrong with your car. It's like taking a telescope. A telescope is good, but if you have cancer, that's the wrong tool. The telescope can see very far and even into space, but the telescope is not going to be able to look into the inside of your body to discover whether or not you have cancer. So the proper instrument to measure the validity of a miracle is what? History. It's eyewitness testimony. So if someone tells you, hey, a miracle happened, what would you say? You would say, well, who else was there? Who else saw this miracle? I wasn't there. I didn't see it. So you're telling me this miracle happened. Who else was there? How many people witnessed this miracle? And so that's the argument that Paul takes in today's passage. So uh, if you have God's word, take it and turn with me to 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15, point number one. We're going to look at verses 1 to 11 today. Point number one is... The resurrection of Christ is essential to the gospel. So once again, 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 to 11, point number one is the resurrection of Christ 
is essential to the gospel. Notice what Paul writes in verse 1. He says, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel, which means good news, that I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand. Now, gospel means good news. Now, the good news is not that Jesus died. Okay, that's, that alone is not good news. There's a lot of false teachers who claim to be a false messiah who died. And it doesn't mean anything. If Jesus simply died, that, only, that would only be 50% of the good news. So the gospel is not Jesus Christ died for your sins. That's only 50%. Oftentimes when we ask ourselves, what is the gospel? And people will say, oh, Jesus died for our sins. Well, that's good. That's good. That's true. But you miss the most important part is that there were a ton of animals that also were slaughtered throughout the Old Testament for sins. None of those animals rose from the grave, from the sacrificial altar. The difference that makes Jesus Christ the victorious Lamb of God is the resurrection. So the most important part of the gospel is the resurrection. It's that Jesus Christ said that he would die for our sins and that he would rise again and he did die, and he actually rose again, therefore our sins are forgiven. That is the good news. And Paul says, let me remind you, brothers, of what I preached to you of Jesus' death and resurrection, which you received and which you stand. Now, this word stand, in the original languages, it's in the perfect tense. And you know why that's so important? Is because the perfect tense means you took your stand on the gospel, and you continue to stand on the gospel. That This is talking about someone who does not walk away from the faith. This is not talking about someone who just believes mentally as a child in the story of Jesus. Oh, that sounded good, but now that I'm 18 and I went to college and I discovered the world, I, I don't want to believe anymore. Right? They did not take their stand on the gospel. It was just temporary intellectual assent. Or it was temporarily, temporary emotional belief. This is not someone who says, I believe in Jesus when it's convenient. But now COVID has revealed that maybe I didn't really need church. It was more of a Sunday experience for me. And since I get to worship at home and I really don't need the body of Christ. I don't really need Christ. That person did not take their stand on the gospel. They temporarily believed in something. But to take a stand is the perfect tense. It means I took my stand on the gospel which I past tense received and I continue to take my stand. Notice the grammatical excellence of Paul here. He says the past tense in which you received, right? You received it, but you continue to take your stand. It's not you stood, you continue to stand. Now verse 2, it says, and by which you are being saved. Notice that it's a process that you're being sanctified. You're already, you're already saved, but you continue to hold fast. It says, by which you're being saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached, unless you believed in vain. Now, Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, also written by the Apostle Paul, says, he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion on the day of Christ Jesus. If you ever struggle with your faith, or if you ever struggle with sin, and you want to continue to believe in the gospel, Paul's words in Philippians 1.6 bring so much comfort that it's not your muscle, your emotional muscle that keeps you saved, right? In the sense where, if I only just believe more, it's not 
oh, I, I need to read more books to learn more. Then I will grow. No, it's the work of Christ. It's that supernatural miracle of being born again. That he who began a good work in you, it's him who will bring it to completion on the day of Christ Jesus. That when Christ returns to call the resurrected, the reason why you will be held is because you held fast, not by your own strength or might, but by the power of the Spirit. And so that's the first point. Point number one is, is that the resurrection of Christ is essential to the gospel. Now, in verses 3 to 11, we see three more points. And what Paul does is, in verses 3 to 11, he gives you three categories of affirmation for the resurrection of Christ. Three categories that evidence the power of the resurrection. In verses 3 to 4, you see that Christ was raised according to the scriptures. Then in verses 5 to 7, you see that Christ was raised according to eyewitness testimony. Then in verses 8 to 11, you see that Christ was raised according to the personal testimony of Paul's life. And that would be of the radical change of a disciple, right? Of someone who was against Christ and he turned to before Christ. So let's start with point number two is Christ was raised according to the scriptures. Now notice verse 3, Paul reminds them. It says, for I deliver to you of first importance, which means it's most important, of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. Now Christ died for our sins. You don't want to miss out. Uh, if you have an electronic Bible where you highlight uh, you want to highlight died for our sins. If you, if you write in your Bible, you can highlight Christ died for our sins. That's the language of Isaiah 53. That is the language of substitutionary atonement. That when you believe in the gospel, you actually believed that your sins needed to be paid for. And you actually believed that someone had to pay for your sins. And so the fact that Jesus died for us means that he took our place on the cross, that we deserved to die on the cross, but Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. Now notice verse 4, it says that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. So each time Paul says it's according to the scriptures, it's according to the scriptures. Now why does Paul mention that he was buried? That's important because there's going to be people who are still alive when Paul wrote this letter. They're still alive when they receive this letter. And, and, and they lived when they could go and see that's where his tomb was. You see, people, people would say, maybe Jesus really didn't die. Maybe he just said, I'm going to die. Then, you know, like in, in Hollywood, they have stunt doubles. Maybe somebody died and it wasn't really Jesus. It was, a, you know, another Jesus who died on the cross and Jesus says, look, that was me. Then he goes and hides. His disciples hide him. And then he comes out and says, here I am. I didn't really die. No, that's not the case. People actually witnessed that that was really Jesus who died. And they actually witnessed his body being taken to a tomb. And they actually witnessed him being buried in that tomb. And so Paul mentions that there would be no resurrection if there's no actual real death confirmation that he was buried. 
And this proves that the skeptics are wrong. In fact, there are eyewitness testimony, eyewitnesses that you could actually talk to that would testify, yes, he was actually buried. And on the third day, he rose again according to the scriptures. Now, this term, according to the scriptures, it could be referring to passages like Psalm 16, verses 8 to 11. It could be re referring to Psalm 22. Uh, it could be referring, once again, to Isaiah 52 and 53. These are Old Testament passages that predicted the death of Christ. But when you consider the scriptures, when Paul wrote the letter of, to 1 Corinthians, because the New Testament was not yet fully completed, the scriptures refer to the Old Testament promises and the Old Testament writings. And so these would be all of the writings that would show you that in the resurrection, the promises of God were kept. I want you just to think of Adam. Maybe there's some of you here today who you've had those moments in your life where you're like, man, I messed up really bad. I don't know what I can do to reverse this. Man, I really messed up my marriage. I don't know if I can be forgiven. I really messed up on parenting. I really messed up on the first 15, 17 years of my life, maybe some of you. Man, I really messed up the first 50 years of my life. Man, will Jesus receive me? What do you think Adam thought when he realized that because of him, all of human creation gets put into sin and he died having to believe that he didn't get to see Christ. He died having to trust in God's promise that God would bring redemption, that there would be a new Adam. Do you think that Adam rejoiced on that day as the angels roared in heaven, as, as he looked down and said, wow, I messed up bad, but there is a true and better Adam. What do you think Eve felt? Mothers, how would you feel if God promised that through you, through childbirth, that the Messiah would come, that redemption would come, that would reverse the curse because you ate the fruit? And so you give birth to Cain, and you're like, maybe it's Cain. And you give birth to Abel. Abel's the good one. And Cain kills Abel. And you die having your firstborn child, having knowing that your firstborn child has somehow been exiled out, and your son, Abel, is dead. And so you die saying, God, I'm just going to trust in your promise. Do you think Eve rejoiced that first Easter in heaven with the angels as Jesus rose from the dead? What about Abraham? Abraham leading a really stubborn people. God telling Abraham, Abraham, through your seed, Messiah will come. I will bring redemption to the nations. And Abraham never got, got to see the promised land. He never got to see the promised seed. But he just knew that he, it would be difficult, right? He never, Abraham never got to see Messiah. So he just had to trust that God would keep his promise. You think Abraham rejoiced? What about Moses? Moses never got to see the land that was promised to Abraham. 
He was leading his people 40 years in the wilderness. He just had to believe. He had an intimate relationship with God. Moses did. But he kept banging his head against the wall saying, what can I do to get my people to obey God? And knowing that none of his people could keep the law. And knowing that they're setting up these animal sacrifices, but the sacrifices would never bring Israel near to God. You ever feel like Moses? Where you're like, man, I, I want to be close to God, but I myself struggle. And I, I, I want to leave these people, but I myself struggle with anger. And you think, what was his reaction that first Easter? His hope saying, he gets to see something better than the land. He gets to see Christ fulfilling the law, fulfilling all those animal sacrifices. What do you think about David? God promised David, David who sinned, David who was a murderer, David who committed adultery. David who would, you know, who his sons would divide the kingdom. Man, but God told David, it said, through you is going to be one of your sons. One of your sons is going to have this everlasting kingdom. Well, how is that going to be possible if his sons die? How is that possible if his, if his sons are unfaithful? How is that possible? Look at Solomon. What happened there? What do you think David's hope was? David, seeing that the Lion of Judah, the greater son of David on the first Easter, all these promises fulfilled. All the promises to Israel that would extend blessing to the nations, all fulfilled in the resurrection. If the resurrection did not happen, all of the Old Testament scriptures are meaningless. All the promises of the Old Testament stand because Christ said that he fulfills these promises. He said that he would die. He said that he would rise again, and he did. And that's why Paul repeats, according to the scriptures, according to the scriptures, according to the scriptures, he keeps his promise. Point number three is Christ was raised according to eyewitness testimony. We see this in verses five to seven. Let me read this to you. That he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive. You can go ask them. Corinthians, though some have fallen asleep, meaning they've passed away. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. So first he appeared to Peter. Now this is important because Peter had forsaken the Lord, and the Lord did not forsake Peter though. Peter was the spokesperson and the leader of the apostles. So Jesus made a special visit to Peter to say, Peter, I know you failed. I know you denied me. Uh, have, have any of you guys ever betrayed Christ? Have any of you ever in your life made a commitment to Christ and turned away from him? You know, and, and you're thinking, how can I face Christ? Look, Christ comes to pursue you. He comes to remind you that if you will, will repent, if you'll turn to him, if you will not, allow your guilt and shame to destroy you like Judas. If you turn to him, he will restore you. So Jesus appeared to Peter. 
And Jesus appeared to the 12 disciples. It was critical that he would appear to the 12, all of them who were scattered. And this would not include Judas, though. John 21 gives the record of Jesus appearing before the eyes of the 12, minus Judas. Later, Judas was replaced by Matthias. Then Jesus appeared to more than 500 at one time. So it wasn't just like five here, 50 here, but you could actually ask 500 people who were present, who would confirm to you that it is true that Jesus appeared in his post-resurrection form, most of still whom were alive. But I love the end of verse 6. Because of the resurrection, those who have died, it doesn't say they've died. It says they've fallen asleep. Because in the resurrection, those who die physically are merely asleep because Christ will call them to receive resurrected bodies. And they will rise with Christ. Those who die in Christ, their souls are now united with Christ in heaven. When he returns, the, the dead in Christ will rise first and receive their resurrected bodies. Then all who have fallen asleep will receive their resurrected bodies. Christ is the firstborn of the resurrection. Then in verse 7, right, he appeared to James. Now again, this is so powerful. Have you ever doubted Christ in your life? This is not the apostle James. Actually, there are two apostles named James. There are two apostles named James. But this James, most believe that this James is talking about the James that you could read about in John chapter 7, verse 5. This is Jesus' half-brother. This is the son of Joseph and Mary. And the reason why Paul mentions this is because James was a skeptic. James grew up with Jesus and didn't believe in Jesus. Do you know of people, uh, maybe I'll look in the mirror and say of myself prior to true conversion. Do you know, beloved, of people who grew up in the church being around Jesus but not believing in Jesus? having a final, maybe at the age of 25, 26, saying, that that I believed in, that was dumb. Out of respect for my parents, I'm not going to talk bad about Christianity, but it's not for me. Right? I mean, could you imagine that? James telling Mary, Mom, out of respect for you, <laughs> that's cool. Jesus, my brother, you can believe that he's Messiah. That's not for me, Mom. Right? You guys have those friends who out of respect for the church, growing up in the church, you know, there's this degree of respect, but they've deconstructed their faith and they no longer believe. And so this is Jesus' half-brother James having a front row seat into Jesus growing up, knowing that when James hit his brother that because Jesus was sinless even as a child, knowing that his brother Jesus did not hit him back, knowing that even as a child that Jesus was selfless, knowing that you had this front row seat to Jesus the boy, the teenager, the man, and then knowing and seeing some of his miracles in his earthly life and then not believing until after his resurrection, then James Church history books tell us James is converted. And we believe that it's this James, not one of the two apostles, but this James who wrote the book of James. 
That's what the scholars, the conservative scholars, all argue that it is this James who at one time did not believe in his half-brother, then later came to faith. Paul is wise. Even the examples that he chooses speaks to the skeptics because he's trying to make an argument. He's trying to make a case. And so maybe you can relate to Peter. Maybe you can relate to James. And all of us can relate. And later in verse 7, it says, He appeared to all the apostles. This is recorded in Acts chapter 1, verse 3. That, he, that over a period of 40 days, Jesus appeared to all his apostles in resurrected form. And so that's point number three. Point number three was Christ was raised according to eyewitness testimony. Now, point number four is that Christ was raised according to the witness of a radically changed apostle. Now, I'm going to spend a little more time on this point because this is where it applies to all of us. Christ was raised according to the witness of a radically changed apostle. Look at verses 8 to 11. Let me just first read to you verse 8 and explain it. Then we'll explain each verse, verse by verse. Verse by verse, okay? Uh, verse 8, it says, Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. Now, this is Paul. And Paul was the last of the apostles that Jesus appeared to because Paul was not one of the original 12. And Acts chapter 9 gives us the account of Saul's. So Paul's original name was Saul. His, Saul's radical conversion. That Acts 9.1 tells us that Saul was breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. A nice way, it's not the most politically correct way to say this. But you could nicely summarize that Paul was a first century terrorist against Christians. That's what he wanted to do. He made a name to plan and to execute not only the persecution of Christians and the imprisonment of Christians, but he wanted to kill Christians. He wanted Christians put to death. I don't know of a clearer way to describe him than a terrorist. So how does a man go from wanting to kill Christians to be willing to be killed for Christianity? How do you go from persecutor of Christians, the most fierce persecutor of Christians, to being a one who is persecuted for Christ, but a proclaimer of Christianity. Probably one of the most famous, if not the greatest missionary of all time. How does one go through this radical conversion? Jesus appeared to him. Jesus actually appeared to him. You read about it in the book of Acts where he's on his way. He's on the Damascus Road. He's on his way to persecute more Christians. And he's blinded, knocked off his horse. And Jesus actually says to him, appears to him in a vision. and says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? You see, because Jesus made it very clear to him, Saul, when you persecute my people, you're actually persecuting me. Why are you persecuting me? And obviously, Paul was converted at that point. Now, this phrase, untimely born, it's an offensive phrase, but it fits how Paul felt. The word untimely born, it, it, it describes a miscarriage or a premature birth. So it's not a friendly, warm, and fuzzy term. But Paul felt, he felt that unlike the other apostles, he was not nurtured in the womb. He didn't have time to be nurtured of three years of walking with Jesus, 
learning through trial and error, seeing the miracles live, asking Jesus questions. He felt like he was prematurely thrusted out of the womb and born into the faith. He felt like one moment he was born again as a believer, the next moment a 180 degree turn. He felt like it was a premature birth. That all of a sudden he went from, like I said, wanting to kill Christians to Jesus saying, I'm going to give you a little bit of training. You're going to go to Arabia for a little bit. You're going to get a little bit of a crash course. And you're going to go right out there and you're going to be a missionary like no other. You are going to be an apostle. You're going to be sent out. You're saved and sent. That's it. You don't get the, the time of nurturing and cradling like the rest of the apostles. You don't get a Peter opportunity. You don't get to deny me and go through shame and, and be restored back. No, Paul, you're going 110 miles per hour. And that's why he says, last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. Now, verse 9, it says, for I am the least of the apostles. Why would he say that? Because it says in verse 9, for I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But isn't that interesting? That the one who is most unworthy, he does the most through this apostle. Christ will change your life, beloved. He will radically transform your life. And this goes back to the opening illustration. Conversion is nothing short of a miracle, but having your life changed over time is nothing short of a miracle. And so the grace of God leads to our repentance. But do you think of repentance as a miracle? It is. Repentance requires a miracle. Again, you can't read a book to repent. It helps to give you some insight, but reading a book, attending a class, joining a group, these are all good things. But apart from the constant miracle of the Spirit changing you, the same Spirit that caused you to be born again, there is no Christianity. There is no Christian growth. There's no church. There's no missions. There's nothing if miracles don't happen. And that logically makes sense if the foundation of Christianity is built on a miracle. Then even the daily Christian life is a miracle. Verse 10, it says, But by the grace of God, not by His works, not by His knowledge, not by his accomplishments. Verse 10, By the grace of God, I am what I am, and in his grace toward me was not in vain. Because Paul is saying, I don't deserve to be saved. Of all people, I was evil. Of all people, I don't deserve salvation. But Jesus saved me, and it's not in vain. I am going to labor. I'm going to give my life to Christ, but it's not my, not me. It's the grace of God. Look at verse 10. It says, second part of verse 10, it says, On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Now, Paul's not boasting. He's simply saying, I, I can't believe that I who wanted to kill all of the apostles and I wanted to destroy the early church. I can't believe that God would do all this through me. And I know it's only by the grace of God. <clears throat> look at, if you look through the New Testament, and if you look through church history, you will see that Paul, he wrote more New Testament, more New Testament books than any other apostle or author. 
he evangelized technically more territory. He started more churches than the rest of the apostles. And he gives all the credit to God. And so God requires a lot. It's not payback. But it's fitting. It's fitting that the one who is most against the church does the most work for the church. I put that as a warning for some of you who hate Jesus. If you don't want to be a pastor, don't, don't love <laughs> Jesus, right? I mean, I mean don't, don't hate Jesus. If you hate Jesus, you're going to get called into ministry. I just tell you that for personal testimony. You mock the church, he might just call you to be a missionary. That's not a bad thing. It's a high honor. The more you hate on Christ, he might just take you and cause you to die to yourself and, and use you and master your life. Isn't that interesting? That's what Jesus does. Not saying that he doesn't use people who love him and are faithful all their lives ever since childhood. But it is an irony. Because actually, those who taste and feel that everything that we have is only by the grace of God, those are probably the people who are less likely to let it get to their heads when the Spirit begins to move in you. Yes, there are moments of pride. Yes, there are moments. But it's so quick. Just a quick reminder of looking in the mirror where Jesus reminds you, look at where you came from. But keep in mind, if you grew up and you were goody-goody all your life, that's not a bad thing. And all of a sudden, Jesus saves you. And then Jesus calls you to do something for him. You know, it's just different. Because you can look at Christ and say, well, Jesus, I've been pretty good to you all my life. I've been pretty good to you. I still believe in you. But again, if you've acknowledged that apart from Christ, your life would be a wreck, and Jesus calls you to do something for him that's hard, and you look at Christ and say, well, without you, I'd be in jail. Without you, I'd be in hell. Without you, I'd be a wreck. Yeah, whatever you want me to do, Jesus, here I am, send me. And so my challenge to all of us is that even if Jesus hasn't called you to be like Paul, that you need to somehow get to the point where you realize that everything that you do that's good and everything that you have that's good is only by the grace of God. The, by the grace of God, I am what I am. And so when the trials come upon your life, that's the way that God breaks you down. Even if you've been good all your life and been blessed all your life, when he sends you that disease, when he sends you that death in the family, when he sends you that trial, he's breaking you down. So that you will say, by the grace of God, I am who I am. I need the resurrection. I need the miracle in my life. If you live each day not praying for miracles, then that means that you're not depending on his power. That means that you don't really need him. And he's going to find a way to break you so that you'll need him. And that you'll pray each and every day for a miracle. Do you understand that when Paul went and ministered, He's walking around. Christianity's brand new. He's praying for a miracle. 
he's praying for people to be converted. He's praying for people, uh, the, the, you know, th- him and others to be rescued from prison. He's praying for people to be healed. He's praying for demons to be casted out. He's praying for strongholds to be broken. He's praying for healing so that the gospel in an early church will be validated. He's praying for churches to be started. He's praying for financial provision, yet he's tent-making, right? He's praying, he's praying, he's praying each and every day. Paul was saved by a miracle so that he would realize by the means of your salvation would you carry out the ministry. By the means of your salvation would you experience your sanctification. That every single day, Paul, you will be on your knees praying for a miracle. The problem with American Christianity is we don't need miracles. The problem with the evangelical church and we've grown comfortable is that we don't need a miracle. The problem is we show up on Sunday and we have our schedules and our plans and our sermons and our worship sets all crafted out and it's our skill and our technology and our buildings and we that's all good. But apart from a miracle, nobody's getting saved and nobody's being sanctified. Lord, teach us each day to need a miracle. And so then, when you start experiencing cancer, no medicine for it. You began to, God, I'm praying for a miracle. God is good, even in trials. And then in verse 11, Paul says, whether then it was I or they, so we preach, so you believed. And he's basically saying it doesn't matter which disciple maker, so as long as the gospel was preached, so as long as a miracle is happening and souls are being converted, Praise be to God, and you believed. You believed by miracle, in a miracle, the resurrection. Big idea, and I'll give you a touch-up illust- um, ex- uh, closing application, but the big idea is the resurrection of Christ is essential to the gospel because with the resurrection comes the power to change your life. Once again, the resurrection of Christ is essential to the gospel because with the resurrection comes the power to change your life. Application, if a miracle is foundational to our belief, then why don't we live everyday lives as if miracles occur all the time? Why do I prepare my sermons going first to the books and not praying that the Lord would show up and perform a miracle in people's hearts? What does it mean to have a radically changed life? When you pray for your own struggle with sin, do you pray for a miracle? When you pray for your spouse or your kids, and you say, man, nothing that I'll do will change you, or nothing that I do will help me change, you're on the right track. Yes, Like I said, no book, no class, no church attendance. Those are all necessary things. No group attendance. No no beating yourself up over the head. None of that. No control plan, nothing. Short of a miracle is going to change your spouse, going to change your kids, is going to change you. When you're praying for someone, man, I just wish my friend would come to saving faith. Do you pray for a miracle? Why is it that we believe, man, if I can just change my spouse, if I can just change my kids, I just read five more books and apply these principles and follow this formula. Man, God, it's not working. Christianity doesn't work. You've forgotten about the foundation. 
Are you expecting a miracle? Are you praying for a miracle? Because that's what happened to Paul. He, it took a miracle to change his life. And a miracle is what it will take for Christians to grow and for people to change. Change comes through the supernatural work of God. But if you're not close to Jesus, you won't be praying for a miracle. If you don't have intimacy with Christ, if you don't pray to him, you won't believe that he answers your prayers. If you don't pray to him daily, if you don't go to him and ask for the little things, you won't see him show up. And I'm not talking about treating Jesus like a genie. Jesus is not Shaquille O'Neal. I, I just... I just dated myself, Kazam. You know, he's not a genie or Aladdin. He's not a genie in a bottle. Or Christina Aguilera. That's not a good song. Don't listen to it. He's not a genie. But ask him for the little things. Ask him for the little things and see if he answers. Ask him, God, help me today. Lord, if you can just give me a moment of today just to rest a little bit, I think I'm going to go crazy. See if he opens up that door for you. Ask him for help. You know, you can pray for the big things, healing and jobs and finance. If you have a financial need and it's reasonable, I'm not saying, Lord, give me a million dollars. Lord, give me a Ferrari. No, no, he's not going to answer those prayers, okay? But you say, Lord, we're going to be $1,000 short this month and there's nothing I can do. Lord, I, I just need exactly $1,000. This is not for extravagance. I need to pay the bills. Let's just say there's, there's some of you out there. I mean, I'm looking at you guys. I, you guys don't need that. I look at your vehicles. But let's just say some of you, you're like, I need 55 bucks. Or college student, I need $1,000 to pay my tuition. Uh, seriously, pray. And if he doesn't answer, that's fine. He's still going to answer another way. But watch him show up. God, give me an opportunity to share with my coworker the gospel. Open up some door. You know, in fact, I'm going to fast and pray and see if he doesn't open up some opportunity. Pray, Lord, I'm about to lose it with my kids. I'm about to just yell and scream, Lord, I just need a nap. Pray, if, pray to see if God doesn't just give you a two-hour nap for a kid who only sleeps 30 minutes. <laughs> just And then you look at that and you don't think, God, that was just by chance. You say, God, you showed up. And that has to be a miracle because my kid never sleeps past 30 minutes. right? And so you begin to experience God and then you're going to start to believe that he will do bigger things in your life. God changes you, you over time. And he changes people it's not always like Paul but you're not going to recognize how God is working in the life of your spouse or your kids or your friends or yourself unless you believe in miracles and unless you get close to Jesus and pray to him and talk to him like Moses did face to face because you can and when you experience that you will experience the resurrection life that this life is so different. It is a new life in Christ. Gone with the old. Where it was all about my flesh. And my works. And in with the new covenant. The spirit and the new creation. Christ 
is our only hope in life and death. It is the resurrection of Christ, and it is the miracle of Christ on the everyday level. Let me pray for us. Father, we come before you this morning, and we ask, Lord, that you would teach us to look for how you would show up each and every day in our lives. Lord, help us to be people who believe in miracles because the resurrection was a miracle and to look for miracles. And even if you don't answer, to see how you are moving. Father, we pray, Lord, that you would cause us as a people who have a lot of resource, have a lot of mental ability, have a lot of things where we tend to depend on ourselves. We have technological tools and everything like that. Help us to need you. Make it so that we'll need you each and every day so that we'll turn our eyes to you like what we sang earlier today. Father, will you fill our hearts with a robust awareness of your spirit's presence and power now as we close our time with a closing song. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.